Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with legendary jazz saxophonist Ernie Watts. Over the years, he has toured with the Rolling Stones, recorded with Marvin Gaye, logged quality time with Buddy Rich, and has played with countless other jazz cats over the years. For 20 years, he was a part of the Tonight Show band with Johnny Carson under the sage direction of the great Doc Severson. He talked with Neon Jazz about his own record label, his latest jazz travels, why he loves jazz so much, and a slew of other tales accumulated over a lifetime of dedication and love to the jazz craft. Please dig this interview, my friends. Yeah, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. Thank you for taking some time to speak with me at Neon Jazz. I appreciate it. Sure. I know you're a busy man, so I'm going to start off my first question. What has been going on with you lately? I just got back from a short tour of Europe. I went to uh, a festival in Switzerland, and uh, my wife, Patricia, and I went and uh, had a really good time. It it was uh, called the... uh, Jazz in the Wind, Swing in the Wind Festival. It was uh, in a little town called Estever La Lac in uh, Switzerland. And then I went from there to uh, Ireland to the Sligo uh, Jazz Summer School and Festival. I was like artist in residence there for a week and worked with uh, young musicians and old musicians and Ran into some old friends there that I hadn't seen in in quite a while, so it was a lot of fun. Did that for a week, and then we came back to the States and uh, flew into San Francisco. And my wife, Patricia, and I, when we travel domestically, we travel by train. We like to do the trains uh, if, if, if we can schedule it out, you know, so it gives me some time not uh, to have to spend in the airports. Well, I was a guest of honor at the Telluride Jazz Festival in, in Colorado, so we were there for about four days. And then we took the train from uh, Glenwood Springs, Colorado, to uh, Chicago, and I had a cons- I had two nights at the Green Mill there with my friend Brad Good, who is a great, great trumpet player who teaches in... Uh, Boulder at the university there. So we came home, had a little bit of time. Now today I have a rehearsal for a concert at the Bowl tomorrow night. You know, I was with the Tonight Show band for 20 years, so I uh, played with Doc's band for all of those years on TV every night. So we're going to do a concert uh, tomorrow at the uh, Hollywood Bowl with a big band that Doc is putting together. Then after that, on Thursday, I fly to Montreal, and I have concerts with, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. L. Subramaniam or not. He is this incredible South Indian violinist that plays, you know, he plays all of the things, all of the ragas and all of the traditional type classical uh, music f- from India on the violin, quite like Ravi Shankar, only it's just not sitar. So it's yeah. a very interesting thing to do. So we're doing that. I'm doing that. And then, let's see, after that, I've got uh, 
concert with Diane Shore in Mission Viejo. And it just kind of goes on like that. Good. Everything is busy. Uh, the music is very interesting all always. And I'm working with my groups and working with friends of mine. And it's very nice. Life is good. That's good, man. Let me get back to the beginnings of your life. You were born in, in Norfolk, Virginia, and you grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. Is that correct? Yeah, I grew up. I started playing in Wilmington, Delaware, so that's why I tell everybody I'm from Wilmington, Delaware, because I was born in Virginia. Then when I was a baby, my uh, my family, we moved to Detroit, and my dad worked for Chrysler for years in Detroit. Then... Chrysler opened another factory in Wilmington, Delaware, and that was a little closer to home for them because, you know, all their relatives, our relatives were in Virginia. So uh, we moved to uh, we moved to Wilmington, and that's where I began playing. I started playing when I was 13 in grade 7 as part of the school program in, in my junior high school there. And what was it like to grow up there in Delaware as far as getting an appreciation for jazz? Did you see live jazz? Was there anything indicative of that area that kind of went to your appreciation for music? Well, I was kind of blessed. It was sort of an incredible thing. You know, I think our life is filled with little miracles, you know, and we just go through life from one uh, miracle to the next. I started playing in the school system, and they didn't have a jazz department. So I started learning to play classical saxophone from the, you know, from the teacher at the school. I grew up in a row house, so my neighbor's house was connected to one of the walls in our house, you know. So he heard me practicing. And I would be practicing in the room every day. I'm sure I drove our neighbors crazy, but everybody was very, very supportive. And he had, a, his name was Alden Jenkins. We called him Aldi. And he was a jazz person, and he had this beautiful jazz collection. He heard me playing, and so he gradually began to direct my, to, to direct my path, you know. He would lend me records. Uh, we would go and see groups in in Delaware, in New Jersey, in Pennsylvania. There were all of these ballrooms, and the bands would come and play, and people would dance. They'd fill up the ballroom, and people would dance in the back, and then the people that were really into the music would stand around the front of the stage and listen to the bands. And so my friend Aldi, he took me to hear Maynard Ferguson's band. I heard them many times. Uh, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, uh, you know, Duke Ellington's band, uh, Stan Kenton's band, all of these incredible bands that would come and play in these places in 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 in, in New Jersey. Uh, there there was one in Hershey, Pennsylvania, you know, where the famous. Uh, Hershey Chocolate Factory is, they had an amusement park there, and they had a big ballroom there. So we'd go up to Hershey, and we'd listen to Stan Kenton. Uh, wow. He'd take me to the University of Delaware, and uh, Duke Ellington gave a concert. That's where I met Cannonball Adderley. Cannonball brought his band, his sextet, down from uh, New York, 
And that sextet was Cannon and his brother Nat and uh, Youssef Latif and I think uh, Joe was playing uh, Joe was 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 playing piano and uh, boy Lewis Hayes and I forget the bass player at the time it was before Walter Booker you know and Joe Zawinul was in that band yeah. So, you know, I grew up, you know, because of my neighbor, my next door neighbor, I it was just an incredible blessing. I just heard all of these groups, you know. And I yeah. got to talk to the musicians and I got to hang out with them and and listen to them and talk with them and you know, I had one situation where you know, where Cannibal played, he let me play his horn, things like that. It was a, a amazing time in that way. So as a child, did you always dream about growing up and being a musician? Were there other dreams that you had? We didn't have a jazz program in our school. I was practicing every day, so after a while, my mother knew I wasn't going to quit. They didn't, you know, my folks were very, very supportive, but they didn't know how to direct my energy. So my mother really knew knew that it was something that I liked to do. So what she did was she uh, bought a little stereo record player for me from uh, from Sears. You know, I grew up out of the Sears catalog. Yeah. Yeah, all my stuff came from Sears catalog. And so uh, they had a music company that was connected with the catalog there that was called Silvertone. And she bought me this Silvertone stereo record player, and she joined the Columbia Record Club. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the first one when you join the when you join that record club the first record you got was free so when she joined the columbia record club the freebie that year and she was looking for something with instrumental music you know with the horns on it the freebie that year was a miles davis record called kind of blue yeah. that was my personal first jazz record wow of uh, the other ones i had i had borrowed and listened to from my next door neighbor. So I heard Coltrane on that album, and after that, that was all I wanted to do. Wow, that's great, man. So I was about, I guess, 15, 14 or 15, and I heard Coltrane, and it just sort of woke me up. I tell people it was like sticking my finger in a light socket, you know? <laughs> it just all the hair stood up on the back of my neck. I was yeah. I was a goner. <laughs> yeah, that's cool, and man. That's when I that's when I got focused. That's when I started on my path. That's amazing how many how many minds have been turned on by that album alone. Oh yeah, um, you know. Um, so you obviously from there you got the you got the bug for music, and we're going to move on a little bit here to the '60s when you got to play with Buddy Rich. What was it like to play with Buddy and have all those early experiences of playing with luminaries like him? Well, it was, you know, I was at the Berkeley School of Music, and Buddy was traveling. They were on tour for his first album that he did with his new big band, and that was called uh, that was called uh, West Side Story. So they were touring on that, playing the music from that album. Uh, they were working at a place called Lenny's on the Turnpike in Boston, and Phil, uh, Gene Quill, who was playing alto with him, decided that he wanted to go home. He decided that he wanted to go back to uh, New York, so he quit the band and uh, 
Buddy was looking for somebody that could sub until the band got to New York and they could get an adult, you know. Yeah. So uh, they called he, he, his manager, a guy named Jim Trimble, who was a trombone player in the band, he called Phil Wilson at the Berkeley School of Music. Phil recommended me, and uh, I went out with Buddy from Berkeley. Right on. And I think I was with Buddy for like two years, and I recorded three albums with them, with him, and then I moved to I moved to L.A. after I left Buddy's band. We had uh, played in L.A. a lot. And we did a summer replacement show for the Jackie Gleason show. Uh, they used to have, for these uh, variety shows that had these long seasons, they'd take 13 weeks off in the summer, and they'd have a replacement show for 13 weeks. And so uh, Buddy Rich and Buddy Greco and, uh, oh, boy, George Carlin was a comedian on there. Wow. And so we did a, this 13-week replacement show, and I was in L.A. for 13 weeks and started meeting people here and playing with rehearsal bands and things. So when I left Buddy, I moved to L.A. So let me talk to you about another experience that, that I'm curious about. I'm sure that this opened a lot of doors for you. Uh, the U.S. State Department, you toured with Oliver Nelson's group to Africa. What was that experience like for you? It was a State Department tour of what had been previously known as French West Africa. And so it was Chad, uh, Niger, Senegal, the Cameroon, Mali, all of those countries. And it was uh, it was an incredible experience because it was just so different and so beautiful. I mean, the people were so great. And it was an all-around amazing experience culturally. And then you touched on the fact that you were the tenor in the Tonight Show band with Doc. For 20 years, night in, night out, you were part of a regular gig like that. What was that like? How did you grow as a musician? What was that experience being around that kind of a caliber of a stage every night like? Well, I had gotten into doing st a, a lot of studio work. So besides doing The Tonight Show, I was also doing a lot of record dates, uh, films, and TV shows, you know, in the orchestras playing on the different scores. Uh, at the time I moved to L.A., Motown was moving from Detroit to L.A. also, so I started being involved in a lot of their horn section things. So I did a lot of R&B stuff for Motown at the same time that I was doing The Tonight Show. So it was a very good experience as far as learning about the music business, as far as learning my craft, as far as being there, you know, when you when it's a 10 o'clock record date, that means that the recording starts at 10 o'clock. That doesn't mean that you're parking your car outside at 10 o'clock. Right. So you learn about, you know, you, you learn about punctuality and you learn about how the music business works. Uh, during The Tonight Show all those years, it was just a very great experience of all the other artists that came on. The band that was was so great. I mean, the other tenor player is a guy named Pete Crislieb, and he's one of the great tenor saxophone players. So every night going to work, it was like going to school. 
you know, I mean, I really learned so much from listening to Pete play, from listening to Conti Candoli play, and Snooky Young was in the trumpet section also, and, uh, you know, Doc and his incredible consistency and his incredible chops, you know, every day. It was just amazing. We had a piano player named Ross Tompkins, and he was like a walking living fake book i mean people could come on to the tonight show that were singers and they could add you know they could say any request any tune in any key and ross would be able to play it you know he was just an amazing he was an amazing accompanist and ed shaughnessy the great ed shaughnessy was the drummer and it was a it was a great band so yeah. that was like, you know, I, I consider it going to school. For me, it was like going to school every night. I got yeah. paid to go to school. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. That's pretty yeah. cool. Well, you talk about Motown coming to L.A. from Detroit, and you worked with Marvin Gaye. What was that kind of experience? Because you were really crossover with jazz and the R&B and Motown. Working with someone like Marvin Gaye after, you know, all of the years in the Tonight Show, what was that like? Well, you know, all of the people... All of the artists are very genuine with their music, and they are very, very good and 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 genuine people. And I think that what happens after a while is it just all becomes music. And people who do their music and people who love music respect other people that do music and respect other people that love all music, you know. And so I grew up listening to all of that stuff, you know. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to listen to, you know, James Brown and 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 listen to Maceo playing with James Brown. That was that was that was great stuff, you know. Yeah. And I used to want to go to hear James Brown when I was in high school. James Brown's band would always come to the Armory in downtown Wilmington, Delaware. And my mother wouldn't let me go to see James Brown because every time James Brown came to town, there was a riot. So she, <laughs> so she wouldn't let me go. So I didn't get a chance to go and see and go and see that particular band. But I got to do this amazing recording with James. There's a thing that James Brown did called Soul on Top. It was an it was a CD with Louis Belson's band. Oliver Nelson wrote all the charts. Maceo was the featured soloist, and James was singing standards. They were doing standards, you know, like he did If I Rule the World and 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 other standards. And uh, it was um, it was an amazing experience. It was so much fun. It was great. Yeah. And then I got to hang out with Maceo, and I see Maceo all the time now. I just saw him in in Telluride when I was up there. He was he was on the road with his group, and we always have we have a lot of laughs when we see each other because he remembers all that stuff too, you know. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I think everybody who is genuinely into their music, they recognize that in other people, you know. And then when I listen to these people and when I play with them, when I play with Zappa or play with The Temptations or played with anybody that I played with, I tried to genuinely connect with their music. 
you know, I didn't go in to play with Marvin Gaye or play with the Temptations or whoever and 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 want to play a John Coltrane solo over the top of it or right. a Charlie Parker solo over the top of it. When I listened to their music, I got involved in their music. Yeah. And I tried to be as genuine as I could be in their music. Uh, and they respected me for that. Uh, as far as being prepared, I was practicing every day. I was studying every day. I was studying Coltrane. I was studying Eric Dolphy. I was studying all these people. So as far as being prepared on my instrument, technically and harmonically and vocabulary-wise, I was overqualified. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because most of the things that pop people do, and most pop music is blues-oriented music, and it's pretty basic harmonically and and, and uh, diatonically. So the music, as far as compositionally and technically, was fairly simple music to play in that way as a physical music, a musician, you know? But... What you recognize is the feel. What you co what you connect with is the groove. What you connect with are the nuances of sounds that these people had. So it wasn't a technical difficulty. It wasn't a technical problem to relate to all of this other music. It was just being aware of what the sounds were and what the essence were was and where you put the beat you know where you played how you played rhythmically within those genres because it was basically all blues oriented music you know except when we worked with frank his thing was uh orchestral but a lot of his a lot of his improvising and a lot of his compositions were still blues oriented things and, and no one, in, in, well, probably very few in the, in the realm of pop, popular music, were as so over the top of blues as the Rolling Stones. Was that a hard thing to fit in with them, or was that something that was no, kind of a natural No, that was thing? very natural. Yeah. That was very natural. You know, when I met Keith and, and uh, Mick, they were already on tour. They had done a three-month rehearsal and uh they had they were they had a saxophone player that was a very well known R and B saxophone player named Lee Allen who was playing with them. Bobby Keys was not playing all of the tour. He was hanging out with Keith, but he'd play brown sugar every night and uh that would kind of be what he would do in the show. He was just kind of he was hanging out, he was a sweet guy, you know, he just passed away recently. Yeah. And he was a good guy. I like Bobby a lot. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they were already on tour. Lee Allen didn't work out for for them. So Mick called Quincy Jones and asked him who he would uh, recommend, and Quincy recommended me. And then what they did was they sent me a bunch of records, and I learned the music on the records. And then uh, I met them at their hotel room, uh, like the day before the gig that they did in San Diego in front of 80,000 people, and that was my audition. My audition was to play with the band in San Diego in front of 80,000 people. 
Wow. So I did that, and I got the gig. Wow. <laughs> and then I was with them for like four months. Yeah. That's cool. Let me, let me hop into the 80s, and, and from what your bio said, there were several flashpoints. It said in the mid-80s you decided to rededicate yourself to jazz, and it also talked about your time in Pat Metheny's group. What were those two experiences like, and why were they such big flashpoints for you? Up until that point, I had been playing jazz continually, but not dedicated, you know, not every day. Uh, I would do record dates and films and TV shows and all of the other things I did in the studio thing. And then I'd play on the weekend with my group, or I'd play on Wednesday nights at a club called Dante's in the in the Valley. And I kept my jazz playing together, but it's not the same if you're not doing it really concentrated and focused. And so I had always wanted to do that. I came, I, I, I came out of that. I came out of Cannonball and Coltrane and Eric Dolphy and 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 Ornette and all of those people. And so I was, I, I was in that space when I was doing all of the other things. So I had always wanted to get back to playing full-time improvisational music. So what happened was a, f- a friend of mine that I did films with, a, a sweet, sweet man named Michel Colombier, he wrote a piece for saxophone and orchestra, a concerto for saxophone and orchestra. I performed it at Do- Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in uh, Los Angeles, and Charlie Hayden and Ruth, his uh, they they were uh, they were engaged at the time. They came to this concert, and after he heard that piece, he came backstage and he introduced himself to me, and he sa- and he said, you know, he's getting ready to move to L.A. from from New York, and he wants to put together a band, and would I like to play? And I said, sure, that would be incredible. So that's how I met Charlie. From uh, meeting Charlie, we started playing together. He's, he put together a L.A. version of his Liberation Orchestra, and I played with that. And then, you know, he and Pat were very, very close. Uh, Pat put together <clears throat> a couple of tours. He called it the Special Quartet, and it was uh, it, it was I was included in that. It was Pat, myself, Charlie Hayden. And uh, Harvey Mason did it for a while, and then Paul Werdico did it for a while. And we did uh, we did a tour of Brazil. We did and an South America. We did some other touring, and we did a big tour of Japan. They used to do a festival called Live Under the Sky, and we did this tour of uh, Japan, and it was our band you know, uh, Pat's band, it was Miles' last band, and it was Sunrise band. And yeah. so we were doing, we did this for two or three weeks, and, you know, I heard these guys every day. I, I, I heard Miles' band every day and Sunrise band, and we played every day, and we would see everybody traveling and getting on and off planes and stuff. And uh, I just really wanted to do that 
more full time. And so that's when I made my decision to do that. Wonderful. Let me ask you this. Is somebody that owns and runs their own record label um, playing golf, what is that like? What was it like to get into the starting the label, and what is it like to run your own label now? Well, it's not very difficult because it's just for me. It's just what I do. It's just a personal thing. I wanted to do the music that I felt strongly about with people that I really love the way they play and create my feeling about it. You know, not have to worry about how long the tune is, not have to worry about whether to have a particular guest or not, not have to worry about the, all of those things that people worry about when they're making a record and trying to and, and trying to uh, be in the quote-unquote music business. Uh, this is something that I and my wife, Patricia, we created together just to explore the potential of music and to just open up and really play what we feel and then what and then what we do is we do we do all of the pr- production and the music ourselves Patricia does the art she does all of the liner notes uh, she's gotten really good with the, you know, with the with the computers, with doing the with doing all of the artwork, and then we press it, and then we sell our we sell our CDs on gigs. We have distribution with uh, City Hall Records, and we have distribution in Germany and Japan, and then we sell online. And uh, I do a little talk when we do our gigs. I just tell people basically what we do is we do the music that we feel strongly about, the way we want to do it, and then we travel and we sell our CDs, and the money that we take from selling our CDs, I put in a box under the bed. And then we go out, and then we come back, and I put some more money in the box under the bed. And then after a while, the lid of the box starts to open up, and Patricia says, it's time to count the money. And then it's a whole little funny, crazy story I tell. But basically, we take all of the money that we make selling our CDs and make to turn it around and make another CD. Cool. And that's how it goes, and that's how it takes care of itself, and that's how we get our music that we love out, and that's how we walk our own path. You know, I don't feel like I'm in competition. I don't feel like I'm trying to keep up with the music business. I don't feel like I need to know what the 16-year-old kids are doing to so that I can gear my music to something that they might want to buy. I think the biggest problem with jazz and 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 other music is we're always begging people that don't know or care to like us. Yeah. And we'll do anything to get people that don't know or care one hair about music or or, or want to understand it to like us. So what we do is we study and we write and we play and we practice and then we take everything we learn and we dumb it down 
to the mind of a 16-year-old, you know? And I'm going to be 70 years old this year. I've studied music all my life. And so I take or I demand my opportunity to play the best I can play and to be as smart as I can be and to be as evolved as I can be on my instrument every time I play. And if you can't, you know, if people can't handle it, then there's a hundred other bands they can listen to. Or they can say, what's that? Wow. I want to I want to hear that. I don't know what it is. I don't know what they're doing, but I like it. I enjoy it. You know? Yeah. So my purpose is to be there to demonstrate and try to live the potential of what is there in our music. Yeah. The potential of what is possible. Amen. With music, rather than rather than begging somebody to please like me, and I'll play this, you know, I'll do, th- I'll play this funny little tune and do a little dance for you, you know. That's not that, me. Doesn't get any better than that, <laughs> you know. I mean, you're in you're in control of what you want to do. You do it. That, that's beautiful, man. That that really is. Well, in, at I'll, some point, you know, we all have to stand up. At some doubt. point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Somebody absolutely. has to stand up and That's say, right. "Hey, this is possible. Mm-hmm. Check this out." Yeah, you know. And I think there's a lot of people that feel the way I feel. Yeah. You know, and I think that there is, you know, I think that there is interest in that aspect of what we do too. So obviously, you've taken your love of music and you've translated it into music the rest of the world has loved. And over the years, you've been awarded Grammys. Recently, you got the Frankfurt Music Prize. What does it mean to get validated with these kinds of awards? How does it feel for you to get these things? Well, it's very nice to know that people appreciate what you do. Yeah. And that feels that feels really good. It gives your it you know, it it lets me know that somebody cares. Yeah. Besides me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I dig it. You know, and that's yeah. a very nice feeling. Yeah. So, over the years, you've played with what the world would consider in the world jazz heroes: Jack Dejonette, Kenny Barron, Mulder Miller. The list goes on and on and on. I want to know who do you consider your jazz heroes from that first um, album that you listened to to today? Who are the ones that have moved you the most? Well, I think it's all it's it's the basic people that everybody says. It's Charlie Parker and John Coltrane and Thelonious Monk and Miles Davis and you know, I love Keith Jarrett. I'm I'm I that Keith Jarrett is what I listen to. You know, people say, Well what do you listen to when you listen to jazz? I listen to Keith Jarrett. Yeah. Because everything he plays is a melody. Everything he plays is compositional, and it's so beautiful. There's, there are no extraneous notes when you hear Keith Jarrett play. Everything tells a story. Uh, I listen to everybody. 
I love I listen to all the young players. I love the way a lot of the a, a lot of the younger players play. The people I grew up listening to and the people that changed my life are the people that I just mentioned and you know McCoy Tyner, uh Elvin Jones, all of those all of those incredible people, you know Bill Evans, uh so many so Absolutely. many great players, Cannonball, all of those people, and I grew and I grew up listening to all of them. So, as a man that has dedicated his life to the jazz profession, I have a very simple question to ask you, and it's this: Why do you love jazz? Because jazz, in its purest form, is compositional music, which means that when you improvise. It's spontaneous composition, and it is very demanding. Uh, you have to really be in touch with music, with the, with the spirit of what music is. Uh, you have to be in touch with yourself, because it's like having a conversation. When you have a conversation with someone, you don't think about where you're going to put your tongue to enunciate the letter T to say the word the, or the conversation would be over. You wouldn't be able to have a conversation. So there's all of these things that you have to put together to create your vocabulary so that when you speak, so that when you sing your song and you play, it creates something beautiful. It creates a beautiful composition. Uh, that is the primary reason that we all play. You know, all the people that 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 play jazz and are improvisational players are aspiring to play something that's really beautiful. Uh, we're all aspiring to make the world a little better place. When we play our concerts, we're all aspiring for the people to feel better when they leave than they did when they got there. And it's all about being in touch with the spirit of music. You know, I tell people that that music is God singing through us. The spirit, the Holy Spirit comes through us and creates these beautiful sounds that come out of our instruments and to help make the world a more beautiful place, to help balance out the energy. So we are tools for this energy to use to create beauty. So our responsibility as a tool is to be the sharpest tool that we can be so that there's a minimum of resistance to what we play related to the energy that comes through us. So that's why we practice. That's why we learn about music. That's why we learn about our instrument. That's why we study. So that when we play and this energy comes through us, we can spontaneously play what we hear. And that's yeah. what jazz is. That's the that's spontaneous composition, and that's why it's so important to me, and that's why it has become my life because it is a life. It takes a life. Yeah, it takes a life, a lifetime, to be able to communicate 
the things that you feel in a beautiful and spontaneous way. That's right there. I think that's a beautiful way to end this interview. I had several subsequent questions, but you wrapped it all up in that one question. And I, Ern, thank you for opening up your world to me. It was a delight. Thanks again for your time. Continued success. And hopefully sometime here in the near future, I'll see you live. Great. That would be nice. If you, if you are in the audience somewhere, please come up and say hello so that I can put a face with the name and we can talk a little bit. Sounds perfect, man. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Ernie for his quality music, stories, and his time. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or you can visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.